1: this is one of my favorite are you still with me i never expected this welcome back friend enjoy your stay while it
2: uh... lasts. audio the patron saint of suicides contains subject matter that might be sensitive to some listeners listener discretion is advised
3: are you still with me i need to hear from you Stay with me, and we'll get through this together. (laughs) Atonement makes us human, makes us strong, and gives us hope. Shoes and masks, when I remember it, that's what I think about first. Then I remember the love, which is worse because the memories of love are quickly chased away by the reminders of loss. It's so much easier to dwell on the masks, shoes, masks, trains, guns, bodies. So much easier to be afraid of those. Chris led me by the hand to an open two-seater, giving me the window. Still cold from the platform, his fingers interlaced with mine, and he held my eyes with an electric charge as the other passengers filled in around us. People filled in every available space, scrambling to grasp poles and straps. The temperature rose in the car. I saw someone tighten her fingers around her purse... We all waited to move. Then, the doors opened again. More people pushed into the car. I couldn't see who, but I could feel the energy change. An onslaught forced their way in. They pried open aisles for themselves like they were clearing a cornfield with a machete. I noticed the colorful shoes first. Dozens of bright sneakers in all colors of the crayon box one pair in aquamarine and one in coquelicot, a sensual red usually seen in poppies, and the occasional overripe persimmon. Marching into the car like fire ants on the warpath, I looked up and saw the masks. Sit down! Shut up! Like the shoes, the masks came in many colors, but even brighter, even bolder. They were Lucha Libre masks, worn in Mexican professional wrestling, They completely covered the head with holes for the eyes, nose, and mouth. Most came in colors like flowers, with base tones of cobalt, crimson, royal purple. Ornate trim outlined each hole. Fabric accents sewn on for added flair came in the shapes of flames or tiger stripes. An orange mohawk sprouted from the top of one mask. Jaguar teeth bare to the gums lined the mouth of another. In some cases, the mask was a Lucha Libre variation of a pop culture icon such as Spider-Man or Godzilla. A few had been designed to resemble Dia de los Muertos skulls. I tensed when I saw them, not because the masks themselves were frightening, but because they were out of place. Over millennia, survival instincts have taught humans to be cautious when they can't see someone's face. In the same way, the handshake evolved as a way to show that one wasn't carrying a weapon. A bare face signaled peaceful intent. Something as simple as a covered face was enough to raise the hairs on my arms. It should go without saying that the people in the masks were not Mexican wrestlers. They were slimmer. I could tell from their bodies that they were old boys or young men. When they started shouting, their voices confirmed their youth. Many of the male voices sound like they had just dropped into the baritone range. A post-pubescent novelty that suggested they were less adults and... more children trying out the costumes of adults. Some of the boys howled primal battle cries, intoxicated by their audacity. We understood. This was a robbery. Within seconds, the intruders flooded the car like creek water around stones. By the time I became aware of the crime in progress, I was too paralyzed to take action. There were too many people, too many masks, and packed in with other passengers, the crowd reached a critical density where the passengers wouldn't know how to fight or flee. We were wedged into our seats, not going anywhere. The train car had two sets of doors, and masked men blocked these exits. When passengers tried to leave, they were shoved back inside. The number of masked assailants would have been difficult to count at a glance, That anywhere from 20 to 30 young men had stormed the train. Show me your phones and wallets! Making their way from person to person, they snatched items they could easily carry. Cell phones, tablets, laptops, jewelry, watches, wallets, purses. They collected anything that could be stripped from a body, slid off an arm, or removed from a pocket. Anything that could easily be traded or resold. Next to me, Krish whispered,
2: Give me your wallet. They're gonna take it anyway.
3: When someone did protest, well, it was almost worse. Give it up, you fucking fool! One rider had to be persuaded with an open-palm slap to the head. Most didn't put up a fight. The robbery progressed smoothly with minimal resistance from the victims, and hence, minimal violence from the criminals. Within seconds of boarding the train, the robbers had sifted through most of the passengers lifting items from us in a sort of thieves' trick-or-treat. I was grateful Krish had asked me for my wallet. We made it easy for them. Mashing ourselves against the train window and laying our possessions on the seat right by the aisle, I didn't want them touching us. I remember I disconnected from my body and stared at the floor, hoping it would all end soon. Occasionally, I stole a glance and saw how some people went into shock their bodies reverting to a calm state where this train was just like any other commuter car, creating the illusion that this was still something familiar, something safe, allowing them to turn off the part of them that might otherwise panic. Like me, they only moved when a voice demanded they surrender their belongings. They froze as hands padded them up and down and turned out their pockets, unfamiliar fingers grazing their genitals through the fabric. One woman put up a fight. I didn't see her, but I could hear her. I saw some movement, maybe the twist of an arm, then a collision between a body and a steel pool. A man called out to the woman. In the crowd, someone else shrieked. One woman cried to herself in a murmur. I tried to shrink in my seat, and held tighter so we would all protect each other in a fierce, terrified embrace a tear rolled down my cheek. After the woman dropped, we passengers became more compliant and thieves hastened to pluck our goods so they could escape. Somewhere at the center of the car, I heard one of the robbers talk to a rider. He had a mask that resembled a clown. Doby smile, red nose.
2: I, I know you.
3: A moment later, one of the passengers went crazy. And then, in the enclosed space, it sounded like a bomb. Those who carried guns drew them, both criminals and passengers. An eerie pause followed. Boys waved guns in the air, and the people who had disconnected from themselves returned to their bodies, weighing the severity of the moment, understanding that if they failed to act, they might die. Several moved quickly, some trying to subdue their attackers. A stampede of passengers fought against the throngs of marauders, all going for the exits or trying to wrest weapons from hands. I held us tighter. Then everything turned to chaos. Bullets ripped through the train car. They burst through glass, steel, and us. It's late on the Golden Gate Bridge. Even for me. I stroll towards one of the clay-colored suspension towers, the closest to San Francisco. Tonight, its top vanishes within a blanket of low clouds. The sodium lights give them an ochre wash. I shiver underneath a cable-knit sweater. A young couple walks past me, arm in arm, matching bookworm glasses on both of them. They give me a funny look, or maybe a guilty one. As we pass, the man casts a sidelong glance at his companion and gives her a bashful smile. Earlier this evening, I did an open mic. A combination cafe and laundromat on Folsom. I've been thinking a lot about my dad lately. My dad was famous, so most people know who he was, and that means they already know my story. I'm the daughter of the legendary Toby Gensler, comic hero, Manic depressive, suicide statistic. The great Toby Gensler hanged himself. It wasn't some picture-perfect staging either, such as a noose artfully coiled from 1.5-inch manila rope with a knot thrown over a beam and my father's legs dangling like the tips of scissors. My father's body was trussed up in a slobby bundle of telephone cable wrapped multiple times around his neck and secured to the dowel in my parents' bedroom closet. With his feet still on the floor, he let his body drop as if sitting on a swing, and the coils asphyxiated him. In his last minutes, his body fought to stay alive, and his feet scuffed up the carpet. The whole room smelled of excrement, and when I wandered in, I was too young to sense the unnatural stillness, to sense death. I only went in there because I smelled something funny, and I I thought the dog had messed on the rug. The smell drew me to the closet, and there he was. Rake marks where he scratched the closet wall, his fingers coated in blood and flecked with plaster, his head bent to one side, and his swollen blue tongue stuck out. His arms hung limply and his legs bent at clumsy angles, reminding me of a puppet between performances. Which is what he was, I often think, when I'm being mean. This is the last image I remember of my father, and I hate that. I was so young when he died, but not so young that I shouldn't have happier memories. He played with me. I remember him making me laugh so hard, Winston. I spit up orange juice all over him, which just made everything funnier. I try to capture that spirit of playfulness and trap that memory as long as I can. I've been patrolling the bridge for about two years now. I've stuck to this routine because it's given me an unexpected pastime for which I was wholly unprepared. I don't know whether I hope to avoid my chance encounters or if I look forward to them. The patrol gives me a complicated mix of feelings from fear to euphoria. As I pass under the tower, I see the man ahead of me. He's alone, stationary leaning on the railing and looking down at the water. I make out features as I get closer. Stocky, gray-haired, wearing a dark suit. With his elbows on the railing, he might notice that someone is approaching him, but he ignores me. I've seen the pose. I don't have to see his face to imagine his despair as he looks down at the waves. The average height of the bridge is about 220 feet from the water to the roadway. So that's about 20 stories. If you jumped, you'd fall so fast the water might as well be concrete. He must feel me closing in on him. He's made no movement, and I'm guessing he's hoping I'll just leave him alone with the bridge and the water. Instead, I rush up to him. Have you seen a small boy? He's understandably shocked. It's two in the morning. He couldn't sleep. His father and I are getting a divorce. Oh, That's not important just ran away from me you didn't see him no i have to sell my story with greater intensity are you listening to me
1: i haven't seen him
3: i need to borrow your phone it's not that hard to cry on demand the brisk wind makes my eyes water so i can manufacture tears at will the man's jaw hangs open and he clutches his heart for a moment i've made him feel unsafe this is good He was already unsafe on this bridge, contemplating the water, but now he doesn't like the sensation. He wants to protect himself. His survival instincts have kicked in. I need to borrow your phone! I have his undivided attention. Now I can see his face more clearly. He's a white man in his 50s with strong features and a dimpled chin. Under the sodium lights, his eyes are pink and raw. He's been crying. He seems frightened of my frenetic energy. Plus, he seems curious about me. Maybe because I don't look like him. He combs over my Eurasian features and his pupils dilate. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's attraction. His gaze lingers on my left eye. Just like everyone else. The witch eye. I've got a weird eye. Let's talk about it. I've got heterochromia. That's two different colored eyes. Blue here, brown there. Plus, I've got poliosis. It means the eyelashes above the blue eye are white. That's two different genetic abnormalities in one eye. You think lightning can't strike twice in the same place? Look at this fucking eye! Men either find it exotic or repulsive. And I can't tell which it is with him. But the fact that my witch eye has captured his attention is good. I dial up my emotional fragility. Please, please. I can't find my son. This snaps him out of paralysis.
1: Yeah, of course.
3: I clutch his wrist, gently applying a touch that makes him feel connected to another human being. Can he walk with me? He lets me lead him. I'm reminded of how Krish liked to lead me this way, and how easily I was subdued by his touch. I lead the man back towards the mainland. Eventually, we walk astride. To occupy his thoughts, I hand back the phone. I need you to unlock it for me. I wipe fake tears from my cheeks. The man looks over his shoulder, back to the point where he was standing, possibly remembering what he came here to do. Perhaps he wonders if I'm a con artist.
1: What happened to your
3: phone? My son has it. He was playing a game on it. I pretend to dial. I speed up our pace and he falls in step with me, holding the phone to my head. I hear nothing but wind, but I pretend the call went dead. I can't get a signal. I can't get a signal. The distress in my voice compels him to say something encouraging. Keep trying. I wave the phone around. More witchcraft and dial again. Miracle of miracles. It's ringing. I spot a glimmer of hope in his eyes. Good sign. Voicemail.
1: What was your son's name?
3: Milo. That hurt. It hurts just to say the name. Milo! Milo! When he calls the name, my stomach knots.
1: When's the last time you saw him?
3: We were just walking down there. I point vaguely ahead of us along the sidewalk.
1: At this hour?
3: Seeing the grief in my face and possibly remembering that he's out late himself, he decides not to judge me.
1: You don't think...
3: He looks into the water, 200 feet below us. (gasps) Oh my god. It's
1: going to be okay.
3: I'm calling 911. I wave the phone around for a signal again. Ringing... I hold the phone to my ear, pretending that the call is connecting. I give him a brave smile, and he smiles back, although I can tell he's terrified for me. I pretend to hear someone pick up. I've got the dispatcher. We're approaching the Toll Plaza and the mainland beyond it. He scans the road for signs of my son. Now that he's hooked on my story, he's hoping he won't see a small boy being devoured by the waves. My son's name is Milo. My name? Haven. Haven is Homo. My make-believe operator asks me to hold. The man seems frustrated for me. Ahead of us, I see another silhouette in the distance. I want us to get to it as soon as possible, before I run out of things to say on the phone. While I'm pretending to be on hold, I introduce myself. Haven. Glenn. Thanks for staying with me. He has kind eyes. Glenn spots the man ahead of us.
1: Wait here. I'll be back.
3: I lower the phone as soon as Glenn takes his eyes off me. The man ahead of us is a uniformed patrolman. I've seen him before. The officer sees the man running towards him and holds up his hands until Glenn realizes he needs to slow down. I don't hear much of what Glenn is trying to say to the officer, but his hands make grand gesticulations, and he points back to me and seems to be conveying the urgency of my situation. The policeman squints at me as I catch up. The officer recognizes me, but makes no show of it, not even a friendly wave. Instead, he listens earnestly to Glenn's story. Eventually, I catch up with them.
4: Ma'am, you can hang up. I'll take
3: it from here. Together, all three of us turn and walk back to the shore. The officer assures me he will search for my son with me. When we get to the toll plaza, I hand Glenn back his phone and thank him for everything. While I walk off with the policeman glenn heads back into san francisco i hope glenn will return home and sleep heavily i hope he will be happier in the morning with the heroic satisfaction of having helped a woman in crisis i'm even hoping he might forget how he almost killed himself tonight and when he retells the story he'll convince himself that he was just out for an evening stroll to take in the unique beauty of the golden gate bridge after midnight
4: Fog rolled into Oakland. Although it would likely burn off by noon, only phantom shapes were discernible on the gray murk. Victor Blossom left his car and walked toward the train. The string of double-decker freight cars reminded him of an elephant caravan. Blossom was lean, with cropped blonde hair. He wore a loose-fitting three-quarter coat, and when the coal got under this layer, he shivered and stiffened. the terrain changed to gravel under his shoes, and he took long, cautious strides, as if on stilts. He smelled trace odors of discarded refuse, skunked beer, and something mildly sulfurous. He approached the yellow tape that defined the perimeter of the crime scene, where a man had been mowed down by a train. Could have been suicide, probably was. Someone on the other side hurried toward him, Officer Zoe Gibson, with the same dark blue uniform as every other patrolman in Oakland. But he could pick her out of a crowd the way a penguin parent finds its hatchling. Maybe it was the strong angles of her face, or the smile with pronounced canines. Detective Blossom.
1: Officer Gibson. What are the odds of seeing you here? Thank you for coming. You know I shouldn't be here. I'm homicide, and this isn't a homicide. I owe you one. Why this one? You've seen some bodies by now.
2: This one's different. There's something I wanted to show you. Show me. For the past
4: several years, Oakland had recorded close to 90 homicides. Being here this morning took him away from other cases. And yet, here he was.
2: Do you trust me?
4: I think you have promising instincts. I'll take it. The smell of oil and soot overpowered the trash odors. Once the train had struck the man, it had stopped, then backed up so that the police could examine the tracks. We stepped over a coiled wad of soiled toilet paper and several empty cigarette packs, as they passed a
1: few other officers. When did you get here?
2: 537. What do you have? Train was traveling roughly 55, 68 cars. Most containers stacked double, so a total of 132 containers.
1: You talked to the engineer?
2: The freight conductor logged the incident at 443 and phoned the dispatcher.
1: How's he doing? Shaken up. What does he remember?
2: He recalls seeing a young man kneeling on the tracks just before impact.
1: Had the fog set in at that hour?
2: Apparently, but he said that with the headlights, he could see him fairly clearly just before impact. He said he's been through this before, a few years ago when someone threw himself on the tracks around L.A.
1: Blossom thought about all the bodies he'd seen over the years. It gets easier, the more bodies you see, but it doesn't ever get easy. How did the engineer talk about his limited visibility? Didn't spot him until it was too late to stop. Yet he kept going, had a pretty good clip, even though he was cutting through an urban area, even though there was decreased visibility.
2: You think he could have braked in time?
1: That's for someone else to figure out. So, the victim was male?
2: A young adult male.
1: Did the engineer remember anything else?
2: Young, light-skinned, possibly Latin, possibly Asian, maybe white. Couldn't be more precise on age, and he didn't remember the clothing. He remembered the pose.
1: The pose?
2: He said the man looked down into his hands, like he was praying.
1: If he was looking down, how did he get a look at his face?
2: Not a good look. He did glance up at the train, and just before it hit him, tucked his chin down into that prayer pose. Should we ask again?
1: Not yet. All right. Where is it?
2: This way.
4: He could smell blood in the air. They were getting close. Passing the railway engine, the first car of the train, he pulled out his phone, tapped the flashlight function, and shone a beam on the pilot, or cowcatcher, which these days looked less like the visor of a medieval knight's helmet and more like a variant on a
1: snowplow. Human tissue clung to the steel. Engineer, see anyone else besides the victim? No, I asked. Any chance there are cameras around here?
2: No luck. Do you think he chose this place on the tracks because it didn't have cameras?
1: We
4: can try to find out. Blossom sidestepped a used condom in a hamburger box. He saw a smear of blood on one of the ties, next to a discarded pair of corduroy pants. There were no tears in the fabric at all, and no blood on them, so the pants hadn't belonged to the victim. Blood covered the tines, as if smeared by a putty knife. Soon it was mixed with human matter. A few bits here or there, chunks the size of golf balls. Blossom knew what to expect. A train travels 55 miles per hour with 140 cars and a payload of roughly 14,000 tons. It collides in Oakland with a man weighing anywhere between 150 to 200 pounds. How many pieces would be left? Bad math problem. Larger pieces of the body appeared. Torn shreds and fragments of muscle and bone. Barely recognizable as human.
2: This stretches for about 100 yards.
4: They passed a shoe a black leather moccasin curled with age. Not the victim's. Not like the shoe a few steps away, Blossom's stomach turned. An emerald green sneaker lay between the rails, saturated with blood, torn efficiently at the ankle. The remnant of a foot remained stuffed into it. The next few pieces of the victim couldn't be identified as easily. Along the ties, the hunks of flesh looked like chum. The pieces grew as they continued, the size of a small purse. One came from a torso. The skin had flayed from the muscle, and only from the protruding bones could blossom discern these at once belonged to a rib cage. At this point, he mildly resented Gibson for asking him here, mainly because, so far, he didn't know what he could contribute. None of these clumps of flesh were telling him anything. Sometimes on a crime scene, he felt like the cosmos conspired to burden him with grisly scenes just to dispirit him book of Job stuff. He tried to imagine a scene a few hours ago, back when the remains formed a man, and he began to raise important questions. What drove you to it? Why here? Why now? And he couldn't help but ask, if you could see yourself now, would you still have knelt down on the tracks? The stench of carnage lodged in his nose. Following Gibson, he scanned the scene. Here... A crushed cardboard caddy for Tecate beer. There, empty Aquafina bottles. Then, an arm. Long and thin, two bones sprouted through the narrow end. Why would someone do it here? He didn't have an answer. This stretch of train tracks in Oakland cut through a desolate portion of the industrial corridor. In the middle of nowhere, really. Nothing to see here, and it was inconvenient to get to. He noted the chain-link fence on either side of the tracks, topped with
1: razor wire. Do you think he jumped the fence?
2: I found a section someone sheared through with bolt
1: cutters. where are the bolt cutters? Exactly. Are you sure the victim is the one who cut through the fence?
2: Maybe the hole was already there, but it's pretty close to the point of impact. Regardless, I'm guessing that's where he came in.
1: Let's hope someone left some evidence on the fence.
2: I just keep wondering, why here? The location seems odd. Why not just jump off a platform at a station?
1: Maybe this man thought it would be quick, painless. Maybe he wanted to do it in a place where a family member wouldn't find him. Maybe he wanted to make it so that no one could identify him at all, and it would be as if he just vanished into thin air.
2: Does that ever work?
1: Not usually.
2: He did a good job of obliterating himself, though. You can barely tell it was a person.
1: The engineer couldn't be more specific on race? I asked
2: him a few times. Dark hair, light skin, it's all he remembered. The train was going too fast.
1: Did you find a car nearby?
2: I checked around. No car, no bike either. At least that we've been able to find. Do you think it means anything?
1: He probably walked. Oakland's a big place, but it's not that big. The closest neighborhood is Fruitvale. You should check to see if anyone's been reported missing from the surrounding communities. They stepped toward a wet,
4: red hump by the side of the rails, and there lay the largest piece of the body Blossom had seen. At a quick glance, it seemed to comprise the pelvic girdle and part of the trunk, with a leather belt wrapped around it, the nickel buckle embedded into the skin. This part of the body had been dragged down the tracks, until the train decelerated to the point where it fell to the side and rested in the scree. Blossom knelt and Gibson followed his lead, covering her mouth and nose with a sleeve. The detective held his hand just above the mass of pulped flesh, mainly to see if he could still feel any heat coming off of it.
1: He could not.
2: What are you looking for?
1: Anything. What makes you think there's something off about this?
2: Someone came to the middle of nowhere to do this. He knelt down between the tracks instead of just throwing himself in front of the train. He had time to reconsider what he was doing, but he didn't. He didn't get cold feet.
1: That doesn't mean he didn't kill himself.
2: I know, I know. But then there's this. I found this at the point of impact. It's not like the other litter and debris. I think someone dropped it here.
4: Blossom noted the bright color. Vibrant like the man's shoes, a green, but not emerald. Jade green. The bag held a mask, one in good condition. It looked fairly new, with gold trimming the eye holes. He recognized it as a type of mask worn in Mexican professional wrestling. He recalled the official name of the sport with a glimmer of satisfaction Lucha Libre.